Welcome to the Cutting Edge Issues podcast from the Department of International Development at the LSE. We're thrilled to be back for Season 3 of Cutting Edge Issues in Development, Thinking and Practice, a visiting lecture series coordinated by me, Duncan Green, Professor in Practice in the Department, with Assistant Professor in International Development, Dr Laura Mann. Each week, renowned guest lecturers, including Harjun Chang, Rafif Siada, Branka Milanovic and Jayati Ghosh, share their expertise and spark discussion on a range of contemporary global issues in development, from the links between economics and science fiction, to how inequality is driving the climate crisis, to the impact of social media and disinformation on development. In 2020, we moved the series online, enabling us to host fantastic speakers from around the world and to stream the lectures online. This year, we moved the series back to in-person for our students and staff, but we'll continue to share the lectures with a global audience through YouTube, podcasts and blogs. I hope you enjoy the talk. Um, I'm going to uh, introduce the speakers briefly in reverse order. So our discussant is Sinead Murphy. Um, and she's going to, uh, she's from the, she works for the Society for Research into Higher Education. Um, but in her spare time, she's a researcher on comparative literature, uh, especially on Middle Eastern sci-fi, which is why she's uh, got the short straw and ended up being the discussion. Um, and Arab futurisms. Um, she's a member of the Beyond Gender Research Collective. Okay. I think if you're on Zoom, All right. yeah, but it, um, but you can keep trying. I mean, you can try and get into it. I mean, getting into it is just amazing, right? It's easier on Zoom. What's going on? Eradicate that person. I mean, Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is it? Yeah. Sounds a little bit ragged. We is haven't it a job? For a while. Um. She works for the Beyond Gender Research Collective uh, on gender, sexuality, and queer science fiction. So uh, that's our discussant. And our speaker, I'm uh, delighted to introduce, Harjun Chang, who is now at SOAS. If you read the Daily Mail, uh, they got it wrong. He doesn't work at Cambridge um, uh, anymore. He's moved to SOAS, uh, and uh, he is an old friend. We go back a long way, and I've watched his career flower and bloom and uh, with just awesome um awesome progression he's published 16 authored books five of them co-authored 11 edited books the one that really brought him to a lot of people's attention was a book called kicking away the ladder and i've watched him present this to delegates of the world trade organization and create almost like an insurrection at the wto as developing country delegates realized that they were being fed a pack of lies about the history of the now developed countries and their trade policies um, other books include Bad Samaritans, 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, and Economics, The User's Guide. But he's got a book out next week, Edible Economics, and I've got a copy and you can't have it. Um, and it was in the Daily Mail. I mean, there, you can't get better um, promotion than being denounced by the Daily Mail for wokery because he had the temerity to say that the full English breakfast is not really English. And so that was this week's big story. You, there's some stuff about trust and Quateng, but that was the big story this week. Um, and that'll be published uh, next week. And it's going to be Book of the Week on Radio 4, if anybody's interested. Um, his writings have been translated and published in 44 languages, 46 countries. His books 
have sold and anybody who sells who writes books please look away now his books have sold over two million copies um he's the winner of the 2003 gunnar myrtle prize and the 2005 wassily leontiev prize so could you please welcome harjun chang Thank you. Uh, yeah, Duncan's are very easy to buy. You, you know, I give him a free copy of the book and he gives me that kind of uh, introduction. So that, uh, <clears throat> it's uh, my great uh, So what do I say? You know? <laughs> no. Right, yeah. I'm uh, very happy to be here. I'm told that I'm the first uh, live speaker in the LSE program uh, in two years. So I'm very flattered that, yeah, I've uh, been a long friend of the LSE uh, Development Studies uh, program. Uh, since uh, when I was in Cambridge, uh, now that I've uh, moved that uh, closer, I hope uh, to be in more uh, interaction with uh, <clears throat> uh, LSE. Now, today's talk is a bit of a kind of uh, unusual subject, even for me, because I, I mean, uh, talk about a lot of uh, strange things, but uh, yeah, that uh, let's call this uh, a stranger thing, economics versus uh, science fiction. You know, economists are notoriously unimaginative people, while the writers and the readers of science fiction tend to reside at the opposite at the end of the creativity spectrum. So you may think that uh, this is a bit of an odd pairing, but I think that uh, a greater interaction between the two fields uh, can improve both fields, thereby ultimately enhancing our understanding of the world. Before, however, I get into this, the, the main theme of uh, this lecture, which is the interaction uh, between the two fields, let me first point out that uh, much of economics, especially but not exclusively, neoclassical economics, that, uh, which is the dominant uh, school of economics these days, is uh, science fiction in two senses. Yeah? First of all, many economists have believed in the fiction that they are practicing science. You know, the classical economists are like uh, the David Ricardo, talk about iron laws of economics. Yeah? So implying that, you know, this is that, that uh, immutable laws are like what you find in the, the natural sciences like physics and chemistry. Karl Marx uh, styled himself as <clears throat> an advocate of uh, the scientific socialism, trying to distinguish that uh, himself with uh, the other socialists who he uh, denounced as uh, utopian. 
Today, most uh, neoclassical economists operate with the notion that economics is a science. They are at pains, uh, first of all, to separate what they call normative economics uh, from positive economics. Yeah? So normative economics is where value judgment, whether ethical or political, is involved. Yeah? Positive economics is uh, where those are not present and therefore can be practiced that, uh, like natural sciences, especially physics. You know, we say that uh, many economists have uh, physics envy. Moreover, that, that neoclassical economists are very cocky about the scientific progress that they have allegedly achieved. So a very good and embarrassing example is uh, Robert Lucas, uh, the Chicago economics professor who is also a winner of the so-called Nobel Prize in economics. I say so-called Nobel Prize because uh, it's not a real Nobel Prize. It's a prize given by the Swedish Central Bank in memory of uh, Alfred Nobel. So actually, at one point, the Nobel family was uh, trying to make the Swedish uh, Central Bank uh, to drop the name because uh, they were arguing that the Swedish uh, Central Bank was uh, giving prizes uh, to all these uh, right-wing economists whose values uh, do not conform to the values of Alfred Nobel. Yeah? Anyway, that's another story. So Robert Lucas became the president of the American Economic Association in 2003. And in the address, he proudly announced that the problem of, and I'm quoting, the problem of depression prevention has been solved, end of quotation. This is 2003, only five years later, the global economy had the biggest uh, financial crisis and economic depression since the Great Depression of uh, 1929. But never mind that, economists, that uh, neoclassical economists, uh, that uh, will, most of them will insist that at least the positive part of uh, economics is uh, science. So that's the uh, one sense uh, in which uh, economics is a uh, science fiction. Another sense in which uh, it is uh, science fiction is that most economists believe, at least implicitly, that progress in science and technology is uh, going to, or at least can, solve virtually all economic problems. Eh? So especially free market economists will say, you know, give people the right incentives, yeah? by cutting taxes, uh, like uh, the, what this government is uh, trying to do. People will come up with uh, the necessary technologies to solve any economic problems we face, yeah? be it uh, climate change or the, the access to water or whatever. Yeah? It's not just uh, neoclassical economics that, 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 that things like that. You know, Karl Marx and that, that, that many of uh, his followers Imagine the world in which science and technology are so advanced that capitalism is abolished and people can, and I'm uh, quoting Marx, hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, we have cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner. I wonder what they were criticizing, probably the dinner they were eating. Huh? 
Yeah, because that uh, Marx wrote this uh, when he was in England. Huh? Of course, uh, these views are highly misleading. First of all, the view that economics is a science is uh, downright wrong. It is not simply that you know government regulate that uh, the economy based on ethical and political considerations rather than pure economic considerations of efficiency or productivity. Huh? So for example, that, that a lot of countries will have uh, the universal service uh, requirement for certain basic services. Like if you are running the postal service, you have to deliver to every place at the same price so that even people living in remote area will have uh, access to postal service. Huh? A lot of countries that uh, the, cap the prices for essential services like energy, yeah? even this country. Yeah? But it's uh, more than that. Because the very definition of economic actors and markets have ethical and political foundations. You know, so for example, before the rise of capitalism, people did not exist as free contracting individuals. They all existed as uh, members of some community. Yeah? So the individualistic assumption about that uh, behind uh, neoclassical economics is uh, very era specific. Yeah? For another example, today we may take it for granted that corporations are a separate legal person, separate from the shareholders. Yeah? But uh, in the 19th century, when uh, this was uh, the, the instituted, a lot of people objected to the idea. Yeah? So who are the yeah, market actors that uh, even is a political uh, definition? Yeah? Neoclassical economics uh, believes markets to be natural and impersonal things, but they are fundamentally political and even ethical construct. Yeah? So to illustrate that point, what is it? Has uh, frozen. I don't know what's going on. Okay. Yeah, so in the, the, my earlier book, uh, I talk about child labor, you know, in the, right. late 18th, early 19th century with the start of the industrial revolution, child labor uh, became a huge problem. Huh? Of course that, uh, poor children had always worked. Yeah? 
but uh, they were doing children's work. Yeah, they were, I don't know, taking care of the family good. Yeah, take uh, care of uh, their younger siblings. You know, collect firewood, uh, the, the collect water, whatever. Yeah? But with the start of uh, the industrial revolution, machines uh, came along. And now you didn't need uh, the muscle power of uh, full, fully grown adults to operate uh, the kind of uh, the factories. Huh? So actually at the time, uh, they even built uh, the small machines, especially designed uh, for children. Yeah? So a lot of uh, children work at, uh, in the factories and coal mines and so on. And, I mean, they died in large numbers. Yeah? I mean, these were dangerous. Uh, uh, I mean, in, especially in the, the uh, excuse me, cotton factories, uh, the dust uh, that uh, came from the textile manufacturing process would uh, settle in the, the, the workers' lungs and uh, cause uh, the, the, the very dangerous uh, lung diseases. And uh, if uh, the, the worker happened to be a child, oh, thank you. <laughs> that uh, the, the disease uh, would uh, even uh, prevent uh, the lungs from growing. So a lot of uh, children uh, died in factories. So there was a, a campaign uh, to regulate child labor. And finally in 1819, a group of uh, the reformist MPs that uh, tabled uh, this uh, regulation on child labor, which by today's standard was a joke. Yeah? So first of all, it was said that uh, we are going to regulate child labor, not abolish it. Yeah? And we are going to define that, uh, that uh, sorry, that we are going to that, uh, ban child labor only for very young children below the age of how many? Eight, yeah? And from nine to 16, after which uh, the, they were considered adults, they would uh, be allowed to work up to how many hours a day? 12, yeah? Yeah, uh, this is a time when adults were working 15, 16 hours, yeah? So 12 was uh, considered uh, light, yeah? And uh, they said that uh, we are going to regulate this uh, only in cotton factories, yeah? not other factories, not uh, coal mines, nothing else, yeah? because the uh, cotton factories were the most dangerous places. Yeah? Even then there was an uproar. Yeah? A lot of people said, this is trying to undermine the very foundation of a, a free market economy, namely freedom contract. Yeah? You know, these children want to work, these people want to hire them. What is your problem? Yeah? It's not like uh, these factory owners uh, kidnap these children and uh, use them as uh, slave laborers. No, they voluntarily want to yeah, work for these uh, factories. So preventing that is that uh, undermining the very foundation of a free market economy. You know, today, even you know, the Tory government uh, doesn't argue like that. Yeah? I mean, uh, in their Dash for growth that uh, trust and quarting, well, or ex quarting, yeah. <laughs> didn't argue that we need to bring back child labor so that uh, we can have uh, maximum efficiency yeah? and maximum growth. Yeah? Why? Basically, because uh, the, 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 our ethical values have changed. Yeah? 
we have come to accept that the right of children to have a childhood, have education, to have that, that, that play time is more important than the freedom of contract. And once you accept that, there's no more question. The labor market itself is defined by this uh, ethical consideration. The fact that markets are political and ethical constructs also confirms my assertion about the second sense in which economics is a science fiction, namely that uh, it's believed that uh, science, scientific progress will ultimately solve all economic problems. If markets have political and ethical foundations, economic problems will not disappear even with sufficient progress in science and engineering as political and ethical disagreements will never disappear unless you live in you know, uh, not working okay um, wow. this ah okay uh, well, yeah 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 unless you live in this world where descent is completely yeah, abolished yeah Indeed, as I'll discuss later, many science fiction writers imagine worlds in which uh, scientific progress has made people miserable or even have, a, have a destroyed their very humanity in one way or another. So scientific progress, technological progress cannot be a solution to economic problems because the definition of economic problems itself is political and even ethical. Now saying that much of economics is science fiction in the negative sense, doesn't mean that the relationship between the two has to be negative. And in this uh, the, the lecture, I would like to argue that both science fiction and economics can benefit from greater interaction with each other. First of all, science fiction writers could do with more solid understanding of economics. This is uh, the, a brilliant uh, science fiction novel called Bring the Jubilee by the American writer Ward Moore. It is uh, brilliant in its own way, but uh, it failed to convince me because the alternative future in this novel starts from the premise that the South won the American Civil War. But why is it not convincing? Well, contrary to what most people think, the American Civil War was more about the country's economic development strategy than slavery as an ethical issue. You know, the Abraham Lincoln thought the blacks were racially inferior. He yeah, that didn't agree with the enslaving them, but he thought these people should ideally all go back home, yeah, somewhere in Africa. Well, according to the, the Sarah Palin, Africa is a country, so you know where the, they are from, yeah? 
the only economic uh, development strategy of the US was uh, actually determined by the then economically more powerful South, yeah? Because they were the main engine of uh, US export economy, yeah? exporting cotton and tobacco using uh, slave labor. Yeah? At one point that uh, cotton and tobacco together accounted for something like 68% of American export. Yeah? So the South was the economic engine. So in this environment, it was very difficult that, uh, for American manufacturers uh, to grow because uh, the South wanted to have uh, free trade, yeah? export uh, the, the, the agriculture products and import manufactured products from Europe, which are not only better, but also cheaper. Yeah? even considering the considerably high transportation cost of the time, yeah? because the American the, the manufacturing industry was very unproductive at the time. Yeah? However, some people argue that uh, this is not how the country should uh, <clears throat> move forward. This guy, Alexander Hamilton, the very first finance minister, or what they call Treasury Secretary of the United States of America, argued that in a country like uh, the economically backward country like the United States, the government needs to protect and nurture its uh, young industries until they grow up and can compete with uh, the more advanced uh, the, the producers uh, from richer countries. Yeah? This idea is uh, known as uh, the infant industry argument. Yeah? Hamilton uh, tried to argue this, but uh, initially it uh, fell upon deaf ears. Uh, sorry, deaf ears, that uh, what I was saying. Because Yeah, this is uh, the, the hip hop musical the Hamilton. So the, the people like uh, Thomas Jefferson would argue that, look, uh, this guy is crazy. Yeah? I mean, why should we subsidize uh, in, inefficient Yan Yankee manufacturers? Yeah? We want free trade. Yeah? Now, Hamilton dies in a pistol duel with uh, this guy, Aaron Burr, that, that, uh, in 1804, when yeah, Hamilton was the ex-finance minister and uh, Burr was uh, the serving vice president. Uh, he dies uh, in a pistol duel that, that, uh, with Burr. Yeah, that, this was a uh, wild... <coughs> Times uh, because uh, you know the, the serving vice president uh, shoots the ex finance minister dead and no one goes to the prison. Huh? So the Hamilton died in 1804, but you know after the 1812 to 1812 uh, the Anglo-American War, so far the first and the last time in which uh, the U.S. mainland that uh, was invaded. A lot of Americans uh, came to agree with uh, Hamilton, you know. 
unless we develop our manufacturing industry, we are not going to be able to defend ourselves in a future world like this. Yeah? So Americans that, uh, started uh, shifting in that direction. And of course, that, uh, that posed a lot of conflict between the North and the South. Yeah? The North uh, wanted uh, protectionism. The South uh, didn't want it. So if you look at the history of the US at the time, depending on which party is in power, the tariff rate goes up and down like uh, the hugely. Yeah? And finally, it all came to a head in the American Civil War. Yeah? And in that war, the, the South was uh, the eventually defeated by the North. They seemed to have the upper hand in the beginning, but in the end, that, uh, it that, uh, couldn't <clears throat> sustain its uh, advantage because basically, because that, uh, it didn't have the material basis to win that war. And you don't need the uh, kind of uh, economic historian to uh, tell you this, yeah? This guy, Red Butler in the Gone with the Wind, he summarizes this point in just uh, the one paragraph, yeah? So basically he's uh, saying that, look, we are going to lose, yeah? Because we don't have any industrial capacity, yeah? We don't have a cannon factory, yeah? We don't build ships. We have uh, very few foundries. Yeah? How are we going to win, uh, win the war? Yeah? The North had these things because of decades of sporadic but uh, protectionism. Yeah? The South, according to the, the Red Butler, all it had was cotton, slaves, and arrogance. Yeah? Yeah, so in this kind of uh, that, uh, setup, you know, even as a science fiction, supposing that the North was uh, defeated in the war is very unconvincing. Huh? So I hope uh, that, you know, the better economic understanding by science fiction writers would uh, make uh, the science fiction better. But I think that uh, the main beneficiary of this interaction would be economists. Let me explain why I say that. You know, from the beginning, science fiction has been a very powerful way for us to imagine alternative realities in which very different technologies, has, uh, <clears throat> technologies have changed our institutions and thereby individuals forcing us to rethink the assumptions about institutions and individuals that we take for granted in analyzing the world. So for example, countless uh, dystopian science fictions depict a world in which uh, the destruction of uh, modern technologies by some disaster has destroyed modern institutions such as state, democracy, the ban on the, the caste system or moral norms are restraining aggressive or apathetic behavior by individuals. And <clears throat> you have lots of examples of uh, the, the excellent uh, the science fictions that are along the line. The technological retrogression is uh, most frequently the result of a nuclear war, like in the, the John Wyndham's uh, 
Philip Reeves' uh, Mortal Engine, or the, the Ghibli animation, the Nausicaa. It can also be other man-made disasters uh, like the depletion of oil and climate change, like in David Mitchell's uh, Bone Clocks. Yeah? Almost invariably in these alternative worlds, life is very harsh because the destruction of uh, modern institutions have made people closer to these self-seeking rationalists that are idealized in free market economics. The most uh, extreme example of this uh, being Mad Max movies. Yeah. yeah so that, this is what you get that uh, when you take uh, neoclassical economics uh, to the extreme. Yeah? Of course, uh, more science fictions depict the world in which that technologies are far more advanced than what they are when they are written. Yeah? But of course, that is that that, that uh, makes it uh, uh, very interesting to look at uh, science fictions that uh, from the past, because you know sometimes the kind of uh, prediction of uh, technological progress is uh, so like outdated. Yeah? Uh, it's that uh, actually a bit embarrassing. Yeah? Indeed, uh, for many people, that uh, this is uh, the whole point of science fiction that is exploring how more advanced science and technology change uh, social institutions and human nature, or imagining an alien world in which our usual assumptions about human institutions and moralities uh, do not hold because they have uh, completely different and typically more advanced uh, technologies. Yeah? But unlike what many economists would say, most of these science fictions that, uh, that describe a world with uh, advanced technologies do not say that these technologically more advanced worlds are actually better. And we are not even talking about worlds in which uh, technologies are so advanced that they get out of human control and destroy the humanity, yeah? like the Terminator or the Matrix. Yeah? Many of these uh, science fictions tell us that even when superior technologies are apparently serving humans better in some ways, they can make people unhappier because they have been developed on a faulty understanding of human nature. So I don't know how many of you have uh, read this uh, novel. It's uh, called Player Piano. It was uh, that, uh, published in 1951 by the American science fiction writer, uh, Kurt Vonnegut. And yeah, if you're interested in uh, whether robots are going to you know, the, the take your jobs away, you, know, you should read this, yeah? He, back in 1951, he wrote about this world where basically the, 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 he imagined that all industrial processes have been automated. Yeah? using well, what we would call now computer numerical uh, control. Yeah? So no one has to work yeah? and everyone has uh, enough to uh, uh, have a comfortable life. Yeah? So that should, at least according to neoclassical economics, should have made everyone ecstatic. Yeah? Because you have high income, you have uh, that, uh, unlimited leisure time. Yeah, what's not to like? Yeah, 
but most people in this world are miserable yeah? because they don't have purpose in life. Yeah? They feel useless. Yeah? Except for a tiny band of uh, managers and engineers, no one has social views. Yeah? So Bonnegut is uh, implicitly saying that actually work is not just this, uh, this utility that people have to put up with so that they can earn money with which they can consume things, which is in neoclassical economics, the ultimate goal of life. Yeah? He's uh, saying that work has inherent value. Yeah? It's about your self-fulfillment. It's about feeling useful for the society. Yeah? Or think about the Brave New World by Huxley. In that world, the development of human cloning and other reproductive technologies has enabled the humanity to control its numbers, reducing resource demand. Yeah? So if you like uh, degrowth, yeah? It is also a world in which the manipulation of subconsciousness has made people a whole cast appropriate ideas, thereby guaranteeing social peace, and B, adopt extreme consumerist culture that ensures high levels of demand. Right? So there will be no secular stagnation. Right? Lucas would have said that, yeah, that world has uh, solved the problem of depression prevention. Right? So this world, which is arguably a modern neuroeconomist paradise, should be a very happy world, but no one's happy. Take another similar example. This uh, the movie the, by the, 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 the writer and director Andrew Nicole, who also wrote the, the, the script for the Truman Show, Gataka. This movie depicts a world where the developments of uh, genetics and reproductive technologies have put the humanity on the cusp of weeding out genetically imperfect people. Mm -hmm. So it is a world in which the talent is almost perfectly matched with people's jobs, but it is a horrible world in which genetically imperfect people are not even allowed to try for better things. Mm? In other words, Brave New World and Kataka are saying that being imperfect, being not totally predictable, and having free will are key features of our humanity. They are saying that we actually don't want a perfect world if that means destruction of our very humanity. Now, an interesting extension of the idea that science fiction is a way to imagine another economic world is to say that history is a dystopian science fiction without even memories of advanced technologies. In the past, largely because we have different technologies, economic institutions are different. And because economic institutions are different, people are different. Individuals may have free will, but 
what they are, what they want, what they can imagine are deeply shaped by the technologies and the institutions that they live under. So if you have different technologies and different institutions, you have different people. This is why when they were poor, all the nations that are rich today were criticized for having lazy, dishonest, and irrational people. So this is, well, overall people on Australian going to Japan and saying that the Japanese are lazy. This is that American missionary, you know, that, that who lived in Japan. Actually, this guy was uh, not your typical kind of uh, the, the Victorian uh, races because that, uh, he lived in Japan uh, for like uh, 25 years. He was fluent in Japanese language. Yeah? He actually, that, that, that when he returned to America that 25 years later became an advocate of uh, the human rights of uh, Japanese Americans. Yeah? But even he had to say, well, Japanese are easygoing and emotional people. Yeah? Oh, and that, I love this. Uh, this is uh, the, the worst uh, the, the thing that anyone ever said about anyone. You know, Beatrice Webb, uh, the so-called uh, uh, proto-feminist and uh, the, one of the founders of Fabian socialism. Yeah, it, uh, this university. Huh? <laughs> Going to Korea and calling my ancestors 12 million dirty, degraded, sullen, lazy, and religionless savages. Yeah? But even the Germans, you know, that, that when the Germany was poor, and, you know, that the rhythm of life, uh, that because obviously, uh, that basically, the agrarian nature was much smaller, uh, the slower, and then people are kind of cheating all the time because they were desperate, English people would uh, go to Germany and say, these are very lazy, stupid, yeah? irrational people. Yeah? Almost the opposite of the racial stereotype of Germans today, yeah? as uh, organized, efficient, emotionless uh, the, the people. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, this uh, sums it all. Mary Shelley, yeah? she had a fight with her coach driver when she was uh, traveling in Germany and wrote in a diary, Germans never hurry. Yeah? Who would have believed that? Yeah? Anyway, uh, by showing this, I'm not advocating a strictly materialist view in which uh, technologies define institutions and institutions define individuals. I mean, this was yeah, a, a Marxist uh, view of the world. The causalities are much more complex. Individuals may be formed by technologies and institutions, but they also change them. Institutions influence how technologies are used and changed. And also, for example, one influential group of Marxists in the 1970s, like Stephen Marglin and Harry Braverman, argued that capitalists would deliberately change our technologies that make control of workers easier rather than actually that are more efficient. Yeah? So that's uh, the kind of thing that uh, you could think about. Yeah? Technologies may set ultimate boundaries to the institutions that you can afford, 
but there's a lot of room for diversity depending on the, how individuals exercise their agencies. So if you understand history in this way, you can very easily see that economic realities that we believe to be outcomes of some timeless scientific natural iron laws are really the results of the interactions between technology, institutions, politics, and individual agency. And used in this way, historical research becomes similar to writing and analyzing science fiction, except that the alternative realities are not as much imagined as in science fiction. Now, please note that I have just said, said uh, not as much uh, imagine rather than not imagine because the recording and the decipher deciphering of uh, history also involve important elements of uh, imagination. Yeah? We, uh, as that, uh, modern historians, backward project our perceptions, uh, sorry, our values in kind of reading off uh, from historical record the motivations of uh, historical actors. Yeah? We have to imagine some of the unwritten social rules uh, that may not uh, be apparent uh, from the historical text yeah? and so on. So, I mean, the historical research also involves uh, imagination. Yeah? But, you know, <clears throat> there is that, that uh, clear similarity there. Yeah? Finally, there's this uh, British novelist called L.P. Hartley who wrote this uh, book called Go Between, which I have not read. Uh, and, but uh, he famously in the book said, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Yeah? I think it's a, a, a very apt remark. Yeah? So if you say one of the utilities of uh, studying history is to allow us to imagine other realities, you can say the same about uh, studying foreign countries or doing comparative studies. Yeah? Because when the foreign countries are a country with uh, very different technologies, the comparison almost becomes a historical study if you are looking at it uh, from the viewpoint of a technologically more advanced country. Yeah? So if you are comparing, say, Denmark with uh, Uganda, yeah? and the, <laughs> The day in that uh, looking at that uh, Uganda in technological terms will be kind of uh, looking at history. Whereas if you are looking at it from Uganda to Denmark, it's almost uh, like uh, science fiction. You are imagining, you are looking at the world that, uh, with uh, that, uh, far more advanced uh, technologies. Hmm? And of course, uh, the famous uh, science fiction writer Arthur uh, Clarke uh, said, uh, you know, sufficiently advanced uh, technologies is uh, indistinguishable from magic. Yeah? So, <clears throat> and uh, if you see it from the point of the point, point of view of the researcher conducting the comparative study, it is uh, like uh, traveling in a time machine, yeah? the ultimate science fiction fantasy. Yeah? Okay, so that, uh, let me sum up. Uh, in trying to understand the economy and reform it for the better, we can be immensely helped by science fiction, the study of history and comparative studies, because they allow us to see 
First of all, that the existing economic and social order is not a natural one. If you just look at your own society, it may feel completely natural, but if you imagine a different world that, that through science fiction, if you look at another world that through comparative study or history, you will see that that is not natural. These are the, the, the science fiction, history, and comparative studies also tell us that uh, these uh, the economic and social orders can be changed. They have been changed. And most importantly, that they have been changed in the way they have only because some people dare to imagine a different world and uh, portrait. Thank you. Thanks, uh, thanks, Arjun. That was um, a lot to take in. Um, Sinead, comment on all of that in five minutes, why don't you? Um, hi, everyone. Yeah, so I have the questionable privilege to study of reacting immediately to all of that. Um, so hopefully you can take a few minutes to digest that. Think of the, the kind of things you'd like to talk about. Um, I think I'd like to make a couple of quick points, I guess, before we head into the QA. And as separate to that, actually, one of the things I was thinking of. Okay. Too short, short the All right. Um, so some, as somebody wave at me. Um, so I think one of the things I would say off the bat, actually, is. I, as a utopian thinker, <laughs> would say that what you've just done is a science fictional intervention um, in terms of if we think about the relationship between these disciplines. Um, I think that uh, interdisciplinarity, for example, is sort of thrown around as a bit of a, a buzzword, an institutional or, or management piece of jargon in higher education. And I think what we've done here is look at the ways in which science fictional thinking provides a way of imagining otherwise, expressing otherwise, it gives a different kind of grammar or lexicon. To a particular discipline and introduces it in a way that can be familiar uh, where it was previously strange to people who might not be economists like me <laughs> mm -hmm. so i think um i think as a practice that's something that we can introduce as a matter of thinking and creativity i think it's a, a way of us reflecting on the neoliberal uh, academy the neo neoliberalization the isolation of different disciplines in higher education and i could talk forever about that so i won't um, but I, I think briefly I would make a couple of points about what I think of as the two major positions that Ajin um, has taken. Um, the second of which I might be briefer on because I think the audience might have thoughts on that, which is um, this idea of um, economists believing that progress in science might be a kind of catch-all solution um, or could virtually you know, solve all economic problems if it were advanced enough. And I think that's really, really interesting one to take up. And um, I have a lot of thoughts about how that relates to our ideas of capitalism and work. And I think science fiction is a really good, um, a really good tool with which to deconstruct ideas of labor. Um, so I'm sure other people probably have strong opinions about that also. I think you've raised really interesting questions about ideology of progress, how we, how we arrive at the idea of progress and how, econo how economists kind of perceive um, their, their, own, their own discipline within that, that idea of progress. And I think I would like us to talk a little bit about, I suppose, 
um, the centrality of risk and abundance in, in the different examples of science fiction that you've, you've brought up. One of the examples I thought of actually was another Andrew Nichol film, In Time, if you've seen that, mm. majestically with a very strange casting of Justin Timberlake in the lead role. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think the, that idea of biopolitical control um, is, is really closely related to the themes of capitalism and labor that we brought up. And even the racialized capital that you ended on there, mm -mm -mm. I think comes through really strongly in, in something like that. But um, I, can, I think we can come back to, to yeah, looking at, looking at um, biopolitical control and even circling back to your initial comments about um, you know, Karl Marx looking at this as a problem of design almost. Um, I think that we can come back to, to different examples of that. But given my own research area, I would um, spend a couple of minutes, I think, on your first position, um, the first position of the two, which is this idea that economists believe they're practicing a kind of science. Um, science fiction authors love to do that too. <laughs> kind of historically love to do that as well. Um, I think around the kind of 70s, a lot of, the, a lot of the leading authors and a lot of the kind of leading theorists in the genre really tried to position science fiction as somehow separate to like classical, fiction in this way in order to sort of legitimate the genre. So it adopted vocabulary of science in order to legitimate the idea that science fiction has quote unquote importance or significance. Um, so I think that's something that actually inheres in the history of both disciplines in a really interesting way. Um, and kind of the, the relationship with sort of commercial production comes through and resonates between the two. Um, I would argue maybe in the Ward Moore example that that's maybe an alternative history. And here's where you get into like whether genre distinctions are important. And mm -hmm. I don't know about the degree to which um, it matters if science fiction authors are very exact about their economics. I'm interested in what people think about that. I, uh, there's an author I like called Joe Lindsay Walton who was asked about this in an interview I read a little while back, why don't more science fiction authors spend time on the detail, on the, the realism or the rigor of their economic systems and he was like, wow, I don't know how much they want to know or read <laughs> economics. And I think that's a bit unfair. But he also pointed out that it's possibly not convincing to some authors and readers that um, economics is telling the truth in the same way maybe that, for example, physics might be perceived to do. Mm -hmm. So I think you brought, a really uh, brought up a really interesting um, kind of conundrum here about what kind of truth telling we can mm -hmm. look at when we put economics and science fiction in conversation with one another. That has really been a problem for science fiction as well, where I think um, this idea of what kind of truth telling is happening and how much does it need to relate to real science has been a part of the genre. Um, but I think if we look at um, more post-colonial um, iterations of science fiction, it really positions science fiction as a kind of not a genre engine producing kind of effects, more so as a way of thinking, um, a kind of awareness of science fictionality and a way of kind of framing and testing experiences from different vantage points. And I think where you ended your talk really spoke specifically to the problem of vantage point when we're looking at ideas of scale and complexity. Um, so one of the things I was thinking of, um, I'm not sure how much time we have, two minutes. I'll give you a very brief example yeah. from my own area of study. So one of the things that science fiction has been lauded for is the idea to predict and forecast, to tell the future, you know, to, <laughs> to figure out what's going to happen before it does. And that often comes uh, as a result of its relationship with economics. Mm. There's an interesting example from my area of study called um, Utopia. It's, a, it's a, a novella called Utopia by an Egyptian author called Ahmed Palatovic. And he interestingly cites his two major sources as Aldous Huxley's Brave New, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and ah. a text by an economist I had never heard of called Whatever Happened to the Egyptians by Galal Amin is the author's name. Oh. Um, so the text is about um, the kind of open door or infotech policies in Egypt in the 1970s 
and the different sort of sociological changes that that um, that that kind of imposed upon the economic system in in, in Egypt. Massive and quick effects life really. And Ahmed Kalatafi uses that classic um, utopian trope of a gated community, or sorry, of an enclave to create an, a, the idea of a gated community um, in order to sort of fill in the gaps where some of the some of the uh, kind of ideas of scale or range or poor collections of data um, that he that he perceived as being part of that text um, and, and kind of fill in those gaps around human experience and perception that, 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 that weren't a part of it. So um, I'll give you a quick example from the book about it. Um, yeah, so one of one of the, the critics that I worked with um, kind of uh, identified the issue as being this. So in, in Galal Amin's economic text, he treats the neoliberalization of the economy as a kind of neutral. So he treats human behavior as if it's the product of human nature, and that's something that you ended on there, except when it's necessary to treat humans as rational agents central to the mythology of liberal economics. He also treats social, social mobility as if it's necessarily a good thing, despite cha changing the meaning of the terms so that it no longer refers to the possibility of vertical mobility opening up to more people, but instead functions as a euphemism for the increased precarity of everyone mm -hmm. in increasing the agonistic social field. I think that um, that kind of classic science fictional trope of haves and have-nots and being able to look at uh, things from multiple vantage points comes through really strongly in a fictional text like, like Ahmed Kalatafi where it's doubly narrated from two different protagonists from either side of that, and that's good. Mm -hmm. And kind of, it makes um, it makes kind of this dark irony out of uh, really latching onto the idea of human nature as, a, as an economic variable. And so I thought that was really uh, kind of useful example to add to the ones that you've already offered us. But I think we're pressed for time, so let's stop there and hear from everybody else. Great. Thanks. Now, one of the other things I should have said, we're, as I say, we're, we're, we're trying to relearn how to do this thing live, uh, is that uh, this is uh, on Zoom, so questions will be broadcast. Uh, uh, and um, if you don't want to uh, be have your name attached and you're on Zoom, then just say, I want to remain anonymous, we'll read it out. If you're in the room, I guess you come and whisper in Anna's ear or someone's ear if you're worried about your question. Um, uh, being public. I can't think on this topic it's going to be too controversial, but we'll see. So we're going to start with a round of questions in the room. Do we have mics upstairs and downstairs? Deepa? Yeah. We have a mic upstairs. And, okay, so let's go upstairs first because people always go downstairs first. So any uh, hands up if you want to ask a question. People go upstairs because they want to do Facebook, don't they? <laughs> this is, uh, or, or whatever. Uh, uh, yep. Um, question there. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that one of the perspectives you brought forth was about uh, how economists like to believe that science and technology, sorry, progress in science and technology will solve all of our problems. And I'm wondering how that fits in currently with arguments around green growth and things like um, banking on progress in science and technology will help us decouple growth from, say, carbon emissions. So where do you, how, to what extent do you think um, that's a science fiction right now that's currently embodying the environment? Right, chucking in a bomb first one. Excellent. Um, we'll take three and then we'll go to uh, uh, both speakers. Uh, next, anybody else up in, up in the upper gallery? 
No, let's go downstairs. Anyone? Yep, you've got a question here. Deepa, you're going to have to run around. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hajim Chang. And uh, I'm a co-finder of the LC Sapphire Society. And meanwhile, I'm also a student of Justin Lin. So, oh, sorry, Justin Hayes. And uh, that's why I heard you a lot previously. And uh, my question is, uh, it seems the post-Khrushchev Soviet sci-fi writers are very technocratic and on the other hand, very utopian, such as the, um, sorry, that's the Russian, uh, Strugatsky brothers and the writer of the Roadside Picnic. And they all have the view that with the proper management of the social relation and resources, it is possible in achieving a high life quality and egalitarian society that is basically in their view a communism. And meanwhile, the current stream of the cyberpunk fictions would portray a grim dark future for most of the people with the extreme reach on the other side. And that is all because the government or governing is missing. So in your view, uh, would you say that technology or even AI should be adopted in the daily governing? And should we have to maintain a bigger and bigger government in order to coping with the problem of ungoverned capital and technology? Thank you. Wow, okay, this is top questions. <laughs> Anybody else? I think those two could keep us going all day, but uh, let's say one more. Mm, nope. Okay, yeah, we've got one. Yep, one of them. I have a, a kind of comment slash question. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me as I was listening to you is is that this, especially this idea that the past is a foreign place. And when I think about all the kind of um, examinations of what things that are kind of dark and that we're worried about as a society, we seem to need to have an alternative reality to explore them, right? Whether it's in the past or the present or foreign countries, you know, we, we seem to be okay at exploring really dark things if it's in an alternative reality. But a lot of the things that are exploring like our present, we seem to require them to be happy and bright and aspirational. So I wonder, like, is that a barrier for us taking them seriously? You know, the kind of exoticization of gloom. Um, and could we imagine, you know, alternatives that are actually sunny or, or examine, you know, is it too difficult for us to, to focus on the dark topics that are actually within our reality? You know, would people be willing to read a book or to watch a film that's that dark. <laughs> There's a kind of paradox there. Okay, that's those three questions have got to be some best three questions I've ever ever sat through <laughs> up here. Um, who wants to take? Huh? You got this. Okay. Yeah. Take it. yeah. Green growth. Uh, you know, I well, once again, I mean, uh, I don't believe in. However, the uh, uh, quickly the, the technology that actually develops in terms of renewable energy or the, the reduction in material use, uh, I don't think uh, that will completely solve the problem. Yeah? Because that, that there'll always be a question of uh, that, you know, unless you believe in that uh, Marxist utopia where things are so plenty, there's uh, no distribution struggle 
at all and whatever little uh, struggle there is uh, will be managed by benevolent uh, the central planning uh, authority you know, there will always be the question of uh, that uh, distribution so i mean even if you open up greater kind of planetary that uh, space uh, by inventing uh, better technologies who's going to take advantage of that yeah so is it going to be the rich countries uh, who have the technologies or is it going to be the poor countries who need to grow yeah so i don't know i mean that, that i think a, a very good example to think about this uh, this uh, proposal for degrowth yeah so i mean there are different forms of degrowth but uh, if it's uh, that, uh, in the form that you know rich countries uh, need to shrink uh, so that you know poorer countries can uh, develop you know, I actually that uh, happen to agree with uh, most of what uh, the, that group says, but there's no realistic political chance that that uh, we will have uh, that kind of uh, the arrangement. Yeah. So, no, that, I mean, you could still argue for this uh, alternative arrangement, but you know, do we then uh, say, okay, we are not going to? I mean, uh, achieve anything until it something like uh, the world socialist revolution happens, yeah? Because anything that, that is uh, short of uh, this uh, fundamental degrowth is uh, that, uh, not yeah, uh, acceptable. Or do we say, you know, that we have to somehow come up with technologies and the, the, the policy proposals that would be accepted and then make some difference yeah so that is uh, the, the ultimate dilemma there uh yeah i mean i must uh, confess that uh, i have only read the uh, couple of uh, the, the books by stugarski the brothers uh Rosai picnic and uh, what, what's it called the dead man's uh yeah so i cannot really comment on the, the, the soviet era uh science fiction but yes i mean i think you know e whether it is pure material technology or kind of social arrangements or institutions. I don't believe that uh, this, uh, that, that uh, sorry, it is possible to somehow come up with the ultimate benevolent uh, that, uh, algorithm and just that, uh, that it, uh, let it run that. that, that Kind of uh, by an AI, yeah? I mean that. You no, know, in a way, I mean that was uh, the Soviet dream, wasn't it? Yeah. So you you create a classless uh, society where everything will be rationally managed. Yeah. There'll be no waste, uh, no conflict. Everyone will get yeah, uh, that, uh, what they deserve. Yeah. As a that, uh, human being. Yeah. But. You know, in reality, that uh, didn't work like that exactly because uh, people wanted different things, yeah, according to how the society evolved, yeah. So, yeah, maybe it was okay that uh, to kind of uh, give everyone the same thing that uh, when, you know, that they just that, that, that were emerging out of the Second World War. But by the 60s, you know, that, that people wanted different things, yeah, you know, they, they wanted that. I don't know different colors of shoes. Yeah, they wanted uh, different types of bread, and you know that, that they they just uh, couldn't deliver that. Yeah, 
He's your tenth birthday. Yeah. Okay. Oh, um, oh, by the way, if anybody's wondering who Big Brother oh, here yeah, is, it's David Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> don't know quite why he's up there, but anyway, in the spirit of 1984, David Lewis is watching you. Okay. Right, <laughs> I find this discussion really interesting. Actually, before I answer the third one, I think, yeah, you've, you've, well, you've kind of both actually hit on a really interesting point, um, which your runs throughout your talk as well, which is kind of this paradoxical position the state takes in a lot of futures imagining, right? Where it's Sort of like the state is something to be discarded to be disdained but also something that is necessary for like regulation um and to actually have like a, a structure like a blueprint really, mm -hmm. any of the things that we make thinkable um so I, I think um more 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 thought experiments um that we more discussions about thought experiments that we could get into would be good but i, I really liked your question and that last one i think um it, it made me think it's so the the broader context of a lot of my work has engaged a little bit with this um where sorry i'm not near enough that one to you. Um, and it, it was something that actually I picked up on when when uh, part of your your talks spoke about um, memories as well about kind of dystopian imaginaries as as relating to memory collective memory for example. Um, so there's a visual artist I was just telling you about that I'm working on a Palestinian visual artist who reimagines what it's like what it, what it would be like to think of the archive as an imaginary archive or if you could if you would doctor art like archival mm -hmm. processes. Um, she has a, a really interesting um, kind of short film and piece of installation work on archaeology, which um, imagines the idea that a this Palestinian subject in a kind of an unspecified time is able to um, use carbon dating to change the, the, the temporality of particular artifacts and bury them in the landscape to kind of reorient the idea of what is the relationship between time and historiography and nationhood. And it's all extremely bleak. The subject matter is deeply bleak. But what becomes quite interesting when she speaks about it is the um, the kind of paratext around the whole thing and how it's presented and digested and and how it's marketed for different audiences. And she said, I think she says this herself. One of the reasons that it's been so successful is and I'm using her words. Um, she said there's an expectation of her work to be quote unquote third worldy, um, to have a kind of graininess to it, to kind of you know really trade only in the bleakness of the subject matter. And instead, her aesthetics are really you know they're they're like CGI sophisticated. They're very sleek. It's very futuristic. Um, it's very humorous. She uses a lot of humor and satire in it. And she said that's just not really what audiences are expecting, given the, the kind of political and um, broader context of the subject matter. But it actually it kind of uses that science fictional dynamic of what is familiar and what is strange to people and kind of assumes certain perceptions and, and does so successfully. So I think in a lot of the work that I've that I've encountered, um, because it's being um, it's being sort of circulated and, and read and encountered in in translation and in, in audiences that are less familiar with some of the context that actually has an exoticizing effect that is it, it kind of shows up these these problems in the genre and how they're presented, but it also is something that a lot of the creators harness to sort of um, yeah to like to to create a greater audience for their work. So I, yeah, I think that dynamic is really fascinating. Okay, anybody uh, next round, um, or have we got someone Zoom? We got someone. So Zoom. I've got one on Zoom and a quick comment, and also just to flag, we've got ten minutes left, and we do need to be out of the room. So I'm oh, do we? quick. Uh. Um, yes, so this, one, this one comes from Hannah Forst. She says, from the lecture, I understood Professor Chang thinks science fiction. Sorry, can't, can't catch you. You're gonna... Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Um, so from the lecture, I understood he, um, Professor Chang thinks science fiction can be a way to imagine alternative futures. For example, a future in which technological advances have not brought the expected promises. My counter argument, science fiction has been there for some time. 
especially regarding technology. But so far, I don't see that many of these dystopias have come true. How would Hajun comment on this? Then I've got another, that was Hannah Forst. I've got one comment, not a question from Leland de la Cruz, um, who says, Hajun misses out on the economic imagination of Star Trek, an economy where replicators can make something out of virtually nothing, except you need minerals for the replicators. Picard says, because there's no more money, people can focus on bettering themselves and exploring space. But this reinforces the point that technology sets the conditions of human possibility. Okay, and any, more in the room. No, 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 no. Yes, one there, Peter. Thanks, everybody on Zoom. Um, I don't know if it's an appropriate last question, but could it be said that uh, science fiction where humans are overtaken by robots represents two con contrasting sides of capitalism? Because <clears throat> <laughs> mm -hmm. because on one hand the idea of robots really appeals to the progress and efficiency side of it because robots don't need food don't need sleep don't need many of the things that we need um but on the other hand precisely because they don't need all of these things it goes against the consumerism side of capitalism so where does the we're going to be overtaken by artificial intelligence fit in a broader economic sort of narrative that makes sense. Yeah, I think growth versus well-being seems like a perfect place to end. Um, okay, so do you want to take one? Any one of those? Sure. I'm kind of. I think that last question is interesting. Um, I think like techno dystopias in particular um, engage with that dynamic. Um, the thing is, and actually, I think some of the examples that you have addressed this is like there's. Science fiction is really good at, at choosing what um, Darko Zubin, a theorist who kind of set the initial, uh, initial kind of definition of what a science fiction is, which has been hotly contested, but for the purposes of this conversation, um, kind of suggested that science fiction texts introduce what's called a novum. So it's just a novelty into the narrative text, and by text, I mean visual, narrative, whatever, um, that causes a, a sort of a, a shift. And we have to ask then, okay, what does this change? What, what other changes does this change make possible? And I think a lot of techno dystopias focus still too much on um, historically, if we think that even cyberpunk, I think historically they still focus too much on narrow vantage points around kind of who is benefiting from what technologies, um, who are they, who, who has access to them, who's responsible for the, you know, the, the supply, uh, supply chain, uh, for example. Um, so I'm, I, yeah, I'm just thinking a lot, of, actually I was recently watching Children of Men, if you've ever seen that, and I think it's a really good um, it's a film directed by Alfonso Coron that's adapted from a novel mm. and it does a really good job of engaging with debates around reproductive technologies but ultimately kind of fails in its exploits because the whole film maps these issues around reproductive futurity um, from the vantage point of like a white privileged man in this future where almost nobody has anything <laughs> and then the the kind of the reproductive future of this post-apocalyptic world sits with uh, a, a black female character who almost doesn't speak throughout the whole film and I think that a lot of techno dystopias still engage in that kind of um, privation of resource a kind of scarcity mentality um, but we could think about something like the dispossessed as a way outside of some of those limited parameters I reckon. Yeah, they're, they're doing that thing of looking through the door yeah. and going, oh, and shutting it again, which is really annoying. Yeah, um, so I'd uh, be very quick. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, the dystopian uh, picture of, uh, depicted in the, the many science fictions haven't come true, but, uh, you know, 
I, I don't think that the, the prediction is uh, really the point of science fiction. Yeah, although as Shinne uh, said, some people take it that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, just an imaginary device. I mean, I that that uh, yeah, that looking back, you know, I was uh, born in 1963, and uh, when I was a kid, that uh, all these uh, boys' magazine. I mean, according to them, but uh, by 1999, everyone will be driving in flying cars and your meal will be three pills, yeah? I would have uh, committed suicide uh, to live in a world like that, yeah? Because I like eating, yeah? Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that uh, it was uh, still, yeah, a useful device in that uh, kind of uh, that, uh, making people uh, think about that, uh, different realities. Uh, yeah, the last uh, the question, I don't know, I mean, uh, for me, yeah, actually I talk about that in this uh, new book, uh, the, you know, the history of uh, capitalism has been history of automation, yeah? So this, uh, that, uh, in some ways, nothing that new about uh, AI, yeah? We hear about this so much because it's uh, now going to automate things that people who write about these things do. Yeah? <laughs> so they are going to get rid of uh, professors. Yeah? Huh? They are going to get rid of uh, the lawyers, yeah? management consultants. Yeah? That's only why that, uh, we are hearing so much about uh, jobs disappearing. Yeah? Think about it. Uh, for the last 250 years, everything has been uh, uh, automated if uh, possible. Yeah? But uh, we still haven't run out of jobs. Yeah, this time around we are worried about that, that job so much because uh, now the journalists, that the professors, management consultants, they are going to lose the jobs. Yeah. So uh, I think uh, there's a bit of uh, class uh, hypocrisy there. My uh, view is that uh, jobs can be socially created. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, for example, uh, introduce a rule that uh, you know, given the care crisis that uh, you are having in this country, yeah. If you introduce a legislation that, uh, that uh, vastly increases the uh, number of uh, care workers for old people, for children, and so on, you know, you will create uh, a lot of jobs. Yeah? I mean, uh, jobs are not that, 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 that determined by technologies. Yeah? I mean, you can't uh, change this. Yeah? Anyway, let me. Oh, can it. I make one reference? Ah, sure. I, I totally agree. And a uh, person I found really Great, by thinking about this is David Graeber. If anybody's read David Graeber's oh, book, oh yeah, yeah, really, and uh, he makes a very similar point that over many decades, like the the kind of distribution of types of labor hasn't really changed. Like there's the same amount of people working in the service industry, even though we've got all this technological advances. And he talks a lot about how we could kind of reimagine economic distribution by thinking about just jobs differently. Thank you. We've got to get out. Um, next week is Rafif Siada, a Palestinian scholar and poet and a, a brilliant speaker. Um, so do come back this time next week. Uh, Harjun will be, uh, his book will be on the book of the week all next week on, on BBC Radio 4. Fizzing with ideas today, lots to listen about, to back on YouTube. Please give them all a big round of applause. Thanks for tuning in to this lecture recording from the Autumn 2022 Cutting Edge Issues in Development Thinking and Practice Lecture Series. To hear more, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch any of these lectures back on our YouTube channel. Search YouTube for International Development LSE. 
Find out about upcoming events, including the next Cutting Edge Lectures, by searching for events on the LSE Department of International Development website and find us on Twitter at LSE underscore ID for the latest updates.